Well, as we have been told already this morning, this is our Communion Sunday. You can surely see that the elements here before us, and we'll be partaking of those in celebration of that in just a bit. But before we go to our time together around the Lord's table and to just help us have our hearts right for that time, I want us to return to our study of the book of Romans. And I want us to focus our attention once again, one final time, on verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. Last Lord's Day, we we were confronted, really, in our own hearts with the final and conclusive argument that the Apostle Paul lays forth to those who might consider themselves savable by God simply because of their own goodness. And the conclusion that is clear from the text from the Apostle Paul is that they are guilty before God. As I told us last week, Paul paints a picture here, or God paints a picture with five brushstrokes, really, through the Apostle Paul as he paints the ugly picture of every person, not simply just the very religious or the Jew, as Paul is dealing specifically with the Jew, but this is really a picture of every person. And we remember from verse 10 of chapter 3 all the way down to verse 18 that Paul quotes from the Old Testament doing that specifically because the Jews held highly the Old Testament. Even if you talk to a Jew today and you try to convince or talk to some Jew about Jesus Christ from the New Testament, you will go nowhere if they are any kind of Orthodox Jew because they see the New Testament as irrelevant. You speak to them from the Old Testament, that's what they believe to be the Word of God, and so Paul does that here. He quotes from the Old Testament Scriptures, and he is proving to them without a shadow of a doubt that each and every one of them is guilty before God as every other human who has ever lived. Why? Simply because man has, as we stated last time, a permeating condition. Verse 10, he is unrighteous. There is none righteous, not even one. So he has a permeating condition that clouds his entire being. In fact, in chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, all are ungodly and all are unrighteous. This is a condition that covers every single human being who has ever walked the face of the earth. It doesn't matter who you are. You have a permeating condition. And that leads to a polluted character. Verse 11 There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. Please, please, please don't ever say you're the one who found God. God says, not true. I found you. There is none who seeks for God. Why? Because their mind and their will is against God. They have an utterly corrupt and polluted character permeating condition of ungodliness and unrighteousness leads to that very reality. Their mind and their will, how they think and what they do, is utterly against God. And therefore, that leads to that third brush that we heard, the putrid conduct of men. And we see that in verse 12 through 17. They are rebellious. They are corrupt in every kind of way. Death is around them all the time, and they are filled with utter hatred. That's the reality of what those verses are say. They've turned aside. They've become useless. Nobody does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. There's poison under their tongues. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet shed blood and destruction and misery are in their past. They cannot even find peace anywhere. There is no fear. This is the ultimate cause. We have a prideful cause. There is no fear, verse 18. No fear of God before their eyes. And that, in verse 18, is a very devastating statement. If you wanted to drop 
the mother of all bombs in the spiritual world. That's it. It's one that is often used in Scripture to describe all mankind without salvation. Paul is quoting from Psalm 36. I read it to us this morning purposefully. Paul is quoting from that very psalm. Psalm 36, verse 1, Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. That's a very interesting way of putting it by the psalmist. Why? Because what the psalmist is meaning is this. Because the word in the Hebrew for transgression is the word peshah. It's an interesting word. It means rebellion in character. Rebellion in character or rebellion in a general kind of way through and through. And so what he's saying is the very character of rebellion within man is the very thing speaking within his very heart It's the very thing from which his life flows. A character of rebellion. The character of rebellion, the character of wickedness is speaking in the heart of the ungodly. That is everybody, any person before Christ. And it's showing itself in their lives through sinful actions. So the psalmist is saying their actions are telling them and the psalmist something about them. Their lives are speaking loudly. And it is saying what? It is saying this very thing. Their actions show, because their heart of rebellion is speaking very clearly through what they're doing, their actions show there is no fear of God before their eyes. David being the writer of that psalm, is personalizing the outworking of rebellion. He's putting an actual face to it in the lives of those who are ungodly, and he is saying that it is telling them something about them. It's telling them that the fear of God is absent. Or, by way of implication, if it was not absent, they would not live in such a rebellious way. So here then is the plain side of the ultimate cause of all the previous brushstrokes that God paints about humanity. This is the plain reality of it. Man has a permeating condition, a polluted character, his conduct is putrid, and the ultimate problem with each and every person is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. So by implication, in the very opposite way, if we were to think about it from the other side, what is the most important characteristic of a godly person? If the ungodly characteristic is no fear of God, what is the most honorable characteristic of a godly person. They have the fear of God continually before their eyes. Fear of God, or the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 9.10 says, is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1, verse 7, says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, ultimately, he's speaking of knowing God there. The beginning of wisdom is knowing, knowing God. That's the very starting place of wise living, which is the essence of eternal life, according to Jesus Christ in John chapter 17 and verse 3. He says, this is eternal life that you may that they may know you. Jesus is praying to the Father in the high priestly prayer, they call it, in his Before he goes to the cross, he's praying and he says, this is eternal life that they may know you, he's praying to the Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. The beginning of wisdom is to know God. The beginning of wisdom is to fear God. 
So listen, the foundation of knowing God, the foundation of eternal life is to fear God. To fear God. To have the fear of God before your eyes. So that if someone does not have that as the foundation or as the beginning, as Proverbs declares it, then they will most definitely go wrong everywhere else in life. Most definitely. So Paul says in chapter 3 of Romans in verse 18, this is what is wrong with every man. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Fear of God is not embraced. Fear of God is not received in the wisdom of men. There is no fear of God before his eyes and his rebellion shows it with all clarity through how he lives. He's ungodly and he's unrighteous. Those who have the fear of God before their eyes continually show it. How? Through offering themselves in service to God out of reverence and awe for God. You say, well, where do you get that, Pastor, in that passage? I don't. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. We've studied this before. And notice what the writer of Hebrews says. I'll begin by reading chapter 12, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He's talking about Jesus. Don't refuse him. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. His voice shook the earth then, But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. He's talking about the coming of Christ and the end of this earth and the coming of an, an endless heaven. The new heaven and the new earth. Therefore, in light of that, he says, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Talking about those who have faith. Since we have been partakers in this new kingdom which is to come, let us show gratitude. How? By which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. Those who fear God, those who have the fear of God before their eyes, this reverence and awe for God, show it through service to God. So the fear of God is not simply some terror for what God could do or what God one day will do with all who do not know Him but rather it's a healthy reverence for God which is worked out in a living of those who are called by His name, saved people. It's worked out in saved people living in such a way that is submissive in obedience to His Word. That's how the fear of God is seen. And so because all men before salvation have no fear of God before their eyes, Go back to Romans chapter 3. What's the fifth, the fifth and final brushstroke that we see? It's found right here in verses 19 and 20. The painful consequence before God. The painful consequence before God. And maybe really, in some ways, we could even see this as a graceful reality. These are two very important verses for us to just focus in on and the reason that I wanted to return to them this morning in our time before communion because Paul is summing up everything that he has been driving towards since chapter 1 and verse 18. This is the summation. 
This is the reasons why Paul has said what he has said. God's wrath is revealed. It is being revealed continuously. What you see before you in the world happening today is not, hey, wait, God's wrath is coming. What you see happening today is the reality that people have turned their back on God and the wrath of God is being revealed. And His wrath is upon all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of all men. So there is no need for anyone to debate about the reality of it. The debate is over before God. In fact, verse 19 says, Now we know. Now we know. In other words, it's common sense to anybody common sense to everybody. We collectively, in all of humanity, we know and we understand that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, common sense, the law is over you, it's speaking to you, and since all men are under law, it doesn't matter if you have a Bible or not. It does not matter if you believe the Bible is true or not. It does not matter if you will have never heard of the Bible or not. All men are under the law of God. And that has been declared and proven from the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from verse 1 of chapter or chap, verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 18 of chapter 3 all men are guilty what god has revealed of himself through his creation is enough about himself to condemn anyone before him it is enough and to have his written word to have the actual oracles of god is even worse if you reject him So why would Paul take such pains? Why would Paul go to such lengths to prove his point about the universal guilt of all men? Why would he do that? I mean, it seems really as if he's belabored the point. He gives two reasons in verse 19. Two reasons. Notice what he says. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that... Every mouth may be closed, and so that all the world may become accountable to God. Here is the two reasons. Here's the driving point. Here's the pinnacle. Here's the ultimate reality for why Paul has made the argument of universal guilt to everybody. The reason, number one, so that every mouth will be shut. And number two, so that all the world would know they are accountable to God. These are two very, very important reasons. And maybe like the Apostle Paul, I'm belaboring them because it seems to be that there is so much confusion in the evangelical church today when it comes to the doctrine of justification. How are we justified before God? say, it doesn't seem very confusing, really. Well, there is so much confusion as to the reason why and how you and I must be saved. And I just want to touch on it a little bit here this morning to try to maybe, maybe blow away some of the fog that we get ourselves into. Paul says, reason number one, so that every mouth will be shut. In other words, I've gone through all of the argumentation I've gone through all the reasons about God and His wrath from chapter 1 to the universal reality in chapter 2 and how it's expressed to the reality of even you who consider yourself religious, you're all guilty, so that every person who thinks that they have something to say by way of defense of themselves before God, you might simply just sit speechless. Maybe I could just say it this way. When the word of God is rightly heard in the heart of sinful man, his only appropriate response is silence before God. 
Let me say that again. When the word of God, rightly heard in the heart of sinful man, when it is heard that way, his only appropriate response is silence before God. I do not mean silence in words. What I mean is silence by way of his own defense. Now, scriptures give us, I think, a picture of this in the Gospels. Go back to Luke chapter 18. This idea of silence before God. This idea of no defense. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is relaying to the people what the reality of salvation must be. And in verse 9 of chapter 18, he starts to tell a parable. He told this parable to certain ones who trusted, notice, in themselves. They had a sense of self-justification, a sense of which they could, in themselves, when they looked in the mirror, they could say to God, I am good enough for you to accept. I'm worthy of your salvation of me. They were trusting in themselves that they were, notice, righteous, and they viewed others with contempt. Sound familiar in our day? I'm not going to hell. God wouldn't do that. I'm a good person. I have not done A, B, C, D, E, F, and G of sins. I've never done that. I'm righteous. I'm worthy. I'm acceptable to God. Jesus says two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. Woo! To the Jews who sat there and listened to this, they said, Ooh, that is a godly man. Another, a tax gatherer. Tax gatherer was Matthew, a traitor. A, a traitor of country, a traitor of people. A, 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 in the old language, a yellow belly. Someone you didn't want to be around. What does the Pharisee do in his prayer? He stands up. And he was praying thus to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I give to the church. I pay my tithes. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying this, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. In other words, God, before you I have nothing to say. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, declared right before God. Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus gives another illustration. Verse 18, a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do? to inherit eternal life. One said, I'm good enough for God to be saving me. I'm not like this guy. I'm already worthy. I'm there. I've reached it. I, I'm, I'm self-justified. The other one wants to justify himself, and he wants to know what he must do in order to reach that. And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. In other words, do you recognize that I am God? Is that why you're using that term? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. It sounds like what we might say to somebody today. They might say to us, well, I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't borne false witness. I haven't dishonored my parents. 
And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. That's what the rich young ruler did. I've done them all. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all your possessions. Distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You say, was Jesus trying to say you can earn your salvation by works? Was he trying to say if you if you do those things that absolutely you will? No. Jesus is simply saying to this person, here's where your heart really is. Because verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad. Why? Because he had a whole lot of things a whole lot of things he's unwilling to give up, a whole lot of things that he built himself, he earned himself, he did himself, he, at least he thought he did. And Jesus says how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. You know what he's saying? It's not simply they're wealthy with money, how hard it is for anyone who thinks they have what they need before a holy God for him to accept them. Self-justified, just like the Pharisee before. Self-justified, what must I do in order to get there? You see, every mouth is silenced before God. There's no argument that can be rightly leveled before God as to self-justification. Every defense, every excuse... Anything man has given has been answered, and we all are left with nothing to say. With nothing to say to God. Beginning of the year, we started reading through the Bible, many of us, in different kinds of ways. I'm reading through it chronologically some time ago in January. Chronologically, it takes you into the book of Job, and I was recently reading through Job. And I was thinking about this recently as I was reading through Job and reading some of the material that I had been that I had picked up. You realize that if anybody could have stacked up their goodness in the world to be before God as worthy, it would have been Job. In fact, the Scriptures, God Himself says to Satan about Job, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was, now get this, this is the declaration of the Holy Spirit about Job. He was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Is there anybody better than that? Job, such a righteous man, and God in His grace we, we get a, to look into this vast picture of God and Satan and Satan trying to undermine God as he's always doing. He says, hey, God says, hey, have you checked out Job? Maybe you go check out Job. Job is blameless, upright, righteous, and fears God and turns away from evil in everything. If there's anybody worthy, it'd be Job. All this trouble comes into Job's life and Job's silly friends come and try to say, listen, this only happens to wicked people. Surely there's wickedness going in you. And Job is looking at his heart and he's scratching the surface of his heart. And he's looking at himself and he's saying, my life, trust me, my life is not evil in any kind of way like that. It isn't true. Just give me a hearing before God. Give me a hearing before the holy God. And guess what? When I lay out my life before God, surely he will say, you're right, Job. Gives Job the hearing. In chapter 42, Job gets his hearing before God. God says, Job, before, chapter 38 and 39, before, or 39 and 40, before you talk to me, Job, I, I want to talk to you a minute. And you'd think that God would say to Job, 
Listen, Job, you're out of your mind. You're clueless, okay? Here's your life. Let me show you your life. You know what? God doesn't do that to Job. God doesn't say, oh, yeah, Job, you remember when you talked to your wife on this day? That's what you did? Yeah, sure, the character totality of your life is blameless, righteous, upright, fearing, fearing me and evil, but God doesn't do that. God doesn't point out any of Job's faults and Job's failures. You know what God does? He just shows him who he is. Job, l- let me show you who I am. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And all that God says is simply highlighting his very character, his his omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence, who God is in every way. And when Job is faced with God and who he is in his very nature and the character of God, Job has one response. This blameless, upright, righteous, fearing evil, fearing God man has one response. He puts his hand over his mouth and here's what he says. Job 42, verse 1 to 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, that which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you will instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you with my eyes. Therefore, I retract everything, And I repent in dust and ashes. You know what Job's in essence saying? I was an absolute dummy to think that even on my best day, I would be worthy for you to accept me. I'll just sit with my hand over my mouth and shut up. Even Job was silenced before our holy God. Why? Why? Because the problem with us, beloved, the problem with us is not that we do sinful things or that we may be less sinful than somebody else in practice. That's not our problem. The problem with us as humans is a righteousness problem. We are liable before God because we are all unrighteous. And because we are unrighteous, we are without Christ. And because we're without Christ, we live continually in a state of ungodliness. And so Paul from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to verse 19 of chapter 3, we have seen the standard of God on display. We have seen who God is, His invisible attributes on display through everything He's made and through everything He said. And it is perfect righteousness that He requires. It isn't that any of us should be better than the rest of humanity. No, that's not the standard. It's not that we could just simply pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps on this side and be a little higher than this one in order to be justified before God. No, we are to, get this, Love the Lord our God with all of our heart and to love Him with all of our mind and to love Him with all of our strength and with all of our soul and our neighbor as ourselves. That's the standard. If justification is to come by keeping something, there's the standard. 
none of us do. Even on our, even on our best Job-like day, none of us do. And the moment we understand that requirement, and the moment we see our own life before God, we have one response. Silence. Very easy for us to say we're better than somebody else. But other people are not the measuring stick. The measuring stick of our righteousness before God is God. And no human is righteous like God. And so verse 19 clearly says, Paul says, this is written this way so that every mouth would be closed. So that everyone would sit with their hand over their mouth and repent in dust and ashes. If that's not enough, Paul says, number two, all the world therefore is accountable to God. Every one of us. Accountable. It's a great word. Hupadikas is what it is in the Greek. Hupadikas. Made up of two words. Hupa meaning under. Decay really is the root of dikas, meaning judgment or sentence. Everybody is under sentence. I like that. Nobody escapes. Nobody escapes. The whole world is under sentence to God. And verse 20 says, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, you can never, ever attain necessary or needed declaration of righteousness. That's what justification means. You can never attain justification before the judge through your own effort, through your own doing of good by doing good things or not doing bad things. It's absolutely impossible. All have a liability. So here's the question for us who are here this day. Have you stopped trying to justify yourself? Has your mouth been shut before God? Have you given up trying to argue your place, your position, your goodness before a holy God concerning His verdict of you? You see, even those of us who are truly saved can really struggle with that reality. We we mix up where justification really lies. You say, well, how so? Because oftentimes we have truly believed the testimony of God about His Son. We're, we're truly saved. We've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And we, we believe in that. We have faith in Him. And then a crisis comes into our life. Some difficulty that God has allowed, whatever it may be, small or large. We might face something uncertain. Maybe it's something where your life is actually potentially threatened. Maybe it's through somebody who who comes to threaten your life in some real way, or maybe it's through some medical whatever it is. And you know what happens oftentimes, even for Christians, we begin to wonder when we have maybe death staring us closely, or or maybe we've, we've said that death might happen. You know what happens? We begin to wonder, you know what, will God accept me? We begin to doubt 
that our life is actually and actively acceptable to God. And you know what we've done right there? We have just now subtly made our justification before God our work. That God, now I've defined my justification by what I do. By how righteous I've been. By how good I've been or have not been. And we begin to subtly convince ourselves that what ought to be striving for holiness by means of the power of the Holy Spirit in our life after we're saved, which we call sanctification, we have now subtly flipped that in a subtle way and made sanctification our new means of justification. And man, I know I'm a failure when I walk with the Lord. I know I don't always obey. I know I'm, I certainly couldn't measure up to, to the title of Job. I'm just a failure. No way is God going to accept me. And what we've done right there is we've made our acceptance before God us. And my righteousness, and my activity, and my doing. And we're just like the rich young ruler. We've convinced ourselves that we can do something in order to attain eternal life. And we've convinced ourselves that God only accepts us on the basis of our efforts rather than only according to the righteousness that is not ours at all. You see, the only righteousness that God will accept is His own righteousness. His righteousness is perfect. He alone is acceptable. And His righteousness is shown to us in the gospel. Isn't that what Paul's whole point was back in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17? I'm not ashamed of the gospel Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Doesn't matter if it's a Jew. Doesn't matter if it's a Gentile. Doesn't matter who it is on the earth. For in it, in what? In the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed. Not the righteousness of you. Not the good works of you. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith. Faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. You see, beloved, all the world is guilty. Condemnation before God is universal. There's no exceptions. It's universal. Your sin... And however you have chosen to act out your sinfulness is no greater than anybody else who has chosen to act it out in some lesser way or some greater way. The issue is not the act of sin that you have done. The issue is you have a liability before God concerning righteousness. You want nothing to do with God. And you live the way you do because of that. All the world is guilty. The whole world has been proven liable. All the world in the presence of God is declared guilty. We must answer to His court. The legal declaration of God about all of us is just that. Big or small, big sin, little sin, big act of sin, little act of sin, doesn't matter. Guilty. Guilty. We are liable. We have no personal defense. You see, that's what the law does. That's what the law does. It reveals to us the areas of failure. God says, love your wife, husbands. God says, don't exasperate your children, fathers. God says to a wife, love your husband. God says to a church, love one another. And every time we don't, the law comes in and goes, you're a failure. 
And God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before the hand of God. All the areas of liability are open to us before the lawgiver. Listen, this is why the truth of the gospel is so precious, isn't it? Man just needs to not be a better moral agent. That's not what he needs. The gospel isn't that man needs better ways to fight against temptations. Oh, if you just learn to have some better techniques to to not behave the way you behave. Oh, if you just learn how to communicate with one another, man, things would be right with you. He doesn't need greater strength to, to get through and cope through difficult times of trouble. Just come to Jesus and that'll help you. No, that's not the gospel that saves. You know why? Because before any of us can do the right work that God requires, the guilt issue has to be dealt with before God. Certainly man needs to fight against temptations. That's true. Certainly he needs to give greater strength when he's in trouble. But doing those things aren't going to cure your guilt problem. Before anyone can ever or will ever rightly do any of those things that we know to be in the Christian world as sanctification, as being holy because He's holy, before we can ever do any of those things, we must be justified. Let me say it this way. You can never be holy in practice before being declared holy by God through Jesus Christ. In the eyes of God, your place must be in the holy place in Jesus Christ before you'll ever practice what you're commanded of Jesus Christ to be holy as He is holy. Holy practice, obedience, always follows your holy position before a just God. It's impossible to be justified through your own efforts at holy living. You cannot do it. So let us never forget this. Let us never forget this. We have to have this in our minds. This is the first chain that must be broken, the chain of condemnation before God. That that has to be shattered, and it can only be shattered by God. It has been shattered by God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's justification. Don't ever pull justification into the realm of sanctifying work. Don't do that. You do that, you're going to get down on yourself. You're going to start to doubt that God's even good enough to to save anybody, that you have to do something in order to be saved. Surely those sanctifying works ought to be the outworking of your life, and we'll see that as we go on through through the book of Romans. But none of those outworkings of goodness and none of those outworkings of God wrought grace in your life that produces obedience will ever do anything to cause you to be righteous before God. not righteous in Jesus Christ I got sad news you're not righteous at all doesn't matter what you do this is Paul's whole point even if you could find a person more blameless than all the rest if they do not believe upon Jesus Christ for their justification before God then you know that even in their morality, there is no fear of God in their eyes. 
all of their deeds are just filthy rags before God. This is where all people must come before they'll be saved. Stop trying to tell people they need to be better. They don't need to be better. They need to be silent before God and beg for His mercy on their soul. So we come to our time of communion here in a moment. We can just thank God that on Christ and Christ alone we stand, right? On Christ and Christ alone, not on us. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time together. Thank you for these penetrating words, Lord. I trust that we've done justice to what you've said. That no one would leave here this morning doubting the reality of true salvation in you. That they would not embrace anything they've done. That they would foolishly turn away from you, convinced in their own mind that somehow they have got good things that you'll accept. Lord, in Christ, we could never be loved any more than you would ever or could love us. We can't add anything to it. We can't bring anything to it. It's all you and none of us. So help us understand that. As we go into the final verses of chapter 3 in Romans, Lord, may we understand justification rightly and what it's based on only. And that is Jesus Christ. Ground us in that hope. And if there's those here who are not saved this morning, who have thought they were, still see themselves before you as if they could not be saved, Lord, help them focus on who you are realizing your wonder and majesty and greatness. Give them mercy, Lord. Cause them to cry out for mercy on you and embrace you through Jesus Christ, turning from their sin, walking in obedience to you, simply because they know in Christ they're not guilty anymore. Help them to repent. Turn to you in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.